0: This podcast contains a reference to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name is Michael Adams and today we're going back to Wednesday the 30th of July 1930. That was the day that Australia got the answer to a question that had been on everyone's lips for weeks. What happened to Eric Hook? Eric Hook was born in Sydney in September 1902 and, with his older brother Reg, grew up in Petersham. Their dad worked as a reader at the Sydney Morning Herald and the family was well-off enough to send the boys to Newington College. When they finished school, both boys worked for a time at the same Sydney insurance company. But Eric was also entrepreneurial. He set up a company to manufacture and sell car batteries and accessories and was also a partner in a city restaurant. In terms of their social life, the Hooks were close to the Linton family of North Sydney. They were Frank, managing clerk of a city law firm, his wife Amy, and their daughter Nona. Nona was the same age as Eric, and by 1924, they were engaged to be married. Yet, there was trouble in the Linton household. In mid-1922, when Frank was 45, he was diagnosed with kidney disease, and it fell to Nona rather than Amy to care for him, which suggested that husband and wife had become estranged. In April 1924, it was clear that Frank was dying. Amy's nerves were shredded from watching her beloved father slowly succumb to this illness, despite her best efforts. Just after midnight on the 29th of April, with her father now unconscious in his bed, Nona went to the lumber room beneath the back stairs, ran a hose from a gas tap, into a wooden trunk, climbed inside, and closed the lid. Sometime in the early hours, a doctor who stopped in to check on Frank smelled gas, and he found Nona dead. Just a few hours after that, Frank died in his bed. Father and daughter were buried together with Eric Hook among those mourning at the graveside. Amy Linton wasn't recorded as being present. We know she was still in Australia, because passenger list records show that four months after her husband and daughter died, she and Eric Hook boarded the steamer Osteray in Adelaide, bound for London. Both would have seemed to want a new start there. And Eric found love again quickly, with Dorothy O'Connor, a 16-year-old Anglo-American girl who'd run away from her home in Barbados. By the end of 1924, Eric and Dorothy were married. As for Amy Linton, she remained in England until 1928, when she moved to South Africa. By 1930, Eric Hook seemed to have a good life in England. He and Dorothy had two little daughters and a house in West Wickham in Kent. But Eric was restless, homesick, and he absolutely hated the English weather. Suddenly, he had a new passion that seemed to be the answer to all of his problems. Aviation. In 1930, being a daring young man or woman in a fantastic flying machine was on par with being a screen idol. In February 1928, Bert Hinkler had become the first man to fly solo from England to Australia, setting a new record for the trip of 15 and a half days. A few months later, Charles Kingsford Smith and his co-pilot Charles Ulm, along with a crew of three Americans, had made the first Trans-Pacific flight when they took the Southern Cross from California to Queensland. And just as Eric Hook was dreaming of such glory, British woman Amy Johnson was trying to go down in the history books as the first woman to fly solo from England to Australia. Fame, fortune and adoring crowds to be there when you landed. What wasn't there to love about being a daring aviator? Eric Hook had made up his mind. He was going to fly to Australia from England and do it faster than Bert Hinkler had. He'd need a co-pilot, and Eric settled on a young Englishman named Jack Matthews, who'd similarly dreamed of aviation glory ever since he'd served as a mechanic in 1928 to none other than Bert Hinkler. Eric Hook had a plan and a co-pilot. All they needed now was to get a plane and learn how to fly it. Being a man of independent means, Eric was able to buy a de Havilland 60 Moth open cockpit two-seater biplane, and he and Jack took flying lessons at a nearby airfield. On the 2nd of June, 1930, Eric wrote to his mother in Sydney, saying he'd, quote, "'Get there or bust.'" His letter continued, "'I've never been so homesick before. Dull, leaded skies make one long for Australia.'" Six days ago, I passed all flying tests. The sole purpose of the flight is to lower the London-Darwin time by a few days. Jack Matthews had also passed his test, and Eric was able to tell his mother, quote, I am piloting, and he is second in charge. We will carry sufficient petrol for 10 hours flying. It will sadly overload our little bus. Eric dubbed his little bus Cell." because he and Jack had both vowed to abstain from alcohol until they reached Australia, and thus they'd be dry as hell. In the weeks leading up to the start of their record-breaking attempt, Eric and Jack tried to cram in as much flying as they could, with Eric telling his mother he got up into the air at dawn and didn't come down until sunset. For reasons that weren't explained, Eric insisted on secrecy, going so far as to ban his wife and Jack's fiancée from waving them off. Nevertheless, these two women snuck out in the middle of the night and, from behind a hedge, watched their men rise into the dawn sky above an aerodrome in Kent on Friday the 20th of June, 1930. Eric Hook would be in Darwin in 13 days and he'd be back home in Sydney a few days after that. As he'd written to his mother, nothing serious is going to happen. I feel success in my bones. A few days ago, Eric had just been another anonymous Australian living in London. Now though, he shared daily newspaper page space with Charles Kingsford Smith and Amy Johnson. Over the next week, Eric and Jack piloted the plane to Marseille and Lyon in France, Pisa and Catania in Italy, Heliopolis in Egypt and Gaza in present-day Palestine, Basra in Iraq and Bushir in what's now Iran. From there, they flew to Karachi in what was then India and is now Pakistan. Reuters reported, The flyers landed in the teeth of a cyclone and sustained a bump due to an air pocket which threw both of them two feet out of their seats. The joystick in Mr. Matthew's cockpit was jerked out of its socket. Newspapers published their progress, including charts showing where Amy Johnson and Bert Hinkler had been, respectively, on each day. Amy Johnson had actually gone as far south as Calcutta by day 8, only to then lose time after that, but Eric and Jack? They were on par with Bert Hinkler, who'd also reached Karachi on the 8th day. This was quite a feat for them, given they'd both been licensed pilots for six weeks, and Bert Hinkler had amassed nearly 15 years' experience before he'd set the record they were now chasing. Dryasel flew on from Karachi at 7am on the 28th of June. From there on, Eric and Jack were delayed by monsoonal weather and a leaking petrol tank. By the 2nd of July, they'd landed in Akyab in Burma, now Myanmar. They were on day 12 and still three and a half thousand miles from Darwin. The top speed for a DH-60 moth was 100 miles an hour. If Eric and Jack flew 12 hours a day for the next three days, they might still beat Bert's record. They took off at six o'clock the next morning, bound for Rangoon, 300 miles away. Four hours into this flight, they hit bad weather and thick cloud over the jungle-covered mountains. Then... Dry cell's petrol tank started leaking again. It was serious, and they were going down. Miraculously, they crash-landed into a field of bamboo, and the plane was cushioned by this foliage before sliding to the ground. Eric and Jack climbed out unhurt, although initial reports would say they'd been injured. They were in one piece, but they were also in thick jungle infested with leeches, snakes, spiders, and, most terrifyingly, tigers and leopards. They also had barely any food. Eric and Jack had no choice but to start walking towards a village they'd spotted from the air. They hoped that the Burmese would help them get to Prome, the nearest town, some 150 miles away. Wearing just shorts and shirts, they walked through thick jungle that tore at their flesh. Leeches dropped on them, leaving them further bloodied. The temperature was in the low 30s, and the humidity was a dense blanket. The monsoonal downpour, meanwhile, meant rivers were swelling, but at least Eric and Jack could catch fresh water. Their walking efforts just on that first day were exhausting, and their food supply already dwindling. Then, they emerged from the jungle back at the bamboo field. They'd walked in a massive circle. All that effort, all that pain, had been for nothing. No one was coming to save them, so they had to start over. This time, they decided to follow the Bali Chuan River, which they hoped would lead them to Prome. When the dryer cell had failed to reach Rangoon, the alarm was raised. Newspapers around the world carried wire stories about Eric and Jack's plane last being seen on the 3rd of July, flying low and seeming to be in trouble. Day after day passed without word, and in Sydney, Eric's parents and his brother Reg were beside themselves with anxiety. On the 12th of July, Jack Matthews staggered into Prome. He was bloody, and he was a scarecrow, having lost 50 pounds. Jack told colonial authorities that Eric was on a riverbank one day's march away. They had to go and save him. In his hospital bed, Jack told the story of the crash and that first futile day walking in a big circle. After that, he said they'd spent about five days walking down the river's banks and were frequently forced to swim and wade across the ever-growing waters, which wore them down further and further. Both men were sick, bleeding, feverish, and trying to stave off starvation with fruits and berries they foraged without knowing whether they were toxic. At night, they slept under trees and in caves, always worried they might be being stalked by a big cat. Eric was suffering the most, and for a time, Jack had to carry him through marshy swamps. Then, he became too weak to do that. On a patch of ground back from the river, Eric told Jack to go on without him, to save himself, to get help, and to come back. According to Jack, Eric Hook lapsed into unconsciousness. As Jack put it, quote, It was a matter of going for help or lying down to die side by side in the jungle. I took the only practical course. Jack stumbled on. He was on the brink of collapse himself when he was found by Burmese villagers. It was the afternoon of the 9th of July six days after the crash. The Burmese took him to their village, but he couldn't make them understand his predicament. After two days there, the villagers took him to a tiny town another day away where a Burmese shopkeeper spoke English. From there, Jack was taken by boat to Prome and to safety. A search party was immediately sent out for Eric Hook, but it was thwarted by continuous rain that made the jungle impassable and flooded the rivers. News of Jack's survival and the search for Eric flashed around the world. English and American papers were hungry for every newswire development. In Australia, the story was a daily front-page drama. Here's how Sydney's evening news headlined it on the 14th of July, Giving it precedence over Don Bradman versus the Palms in the third test. Quote, Hook's heroism in Jungle Nightmare, begged to be left behind, both injured in crash, epic fight for life, searchers fail to find gallant Australian. In England, the day Jack's survival was reported, Dorothy was at Brighton Beach with her daughters celebrating her 22nd birthday. She told reporters, quote, I wish I could broadcast a message to everybody to keep cheerful, because happy thoughts bring luck and unhappy thoughts misfortune. My faith is firm. In Sydney on the 15th of July, Eric's mother was interviewed by a reporter for Sydney's Daily Pictorial. She said, quote, I have not been able to sleep for worry. I still think that Eric will come home to me safely someday. I must try to be brave and look on the bright side of things. Somehow, I feel he is trying to speak to me, to tell me to have hope. Curiously, that very same day, Eric's dead girlfriend's mother, Amy Linton, resurfaced in South Africa. In Cape Town, she told a reporter she was A, Eric's mother by adoption, B, a spiritualist, and thus C, sure that Eric was alive in the Burmese jungle. As if they didn't have enough on their plate, Eric's actual parents now had to clarify for the newspapers that Amy Linton was a family friend who thought of Eric as a son. The outlook was pretty grim as more of Jack's story emerged. He'd told prom officials that he thought that Eric had maybe a day to live when he'd left him to go and get help. And that was more than a week ago now. Nevertheless, a report did the rounds that word had been received Eric was alive and being cared for by Burmese in a remote village that had been cut off by monsoon flooding. These villagers, the report said, had found him on a riverbank, delirious, and since then all he'd been able to say was, Tiger, tiger. In London, Dorothy said of this rumor, It is good news as far as it goes, and I am praying that it may be true. I have never wavered in my belief that my husband would be alive, and this report has given me fresh heart. It wasn't long before this story was discredited, and the search party found the spot where Jack had left Eric and detected no sign of him whatsoever. Still recovering in hospital, Jack said he'd left Eric well above the river. Yet the intensity of the monsoon rain and flooding, he thought, made it likely his friend had been drowned and then washed downstream. London's Daily Mail newspaper knew a circulation booster when they saw one. So the paper teamed up with the Rangoon Gazette to mount its own search for Eric. Of course, this expedition also included a photographer. For more than a week, this private search party, which was led by a Burmese guide, crossed some 30 rivers, spending most of their days waist-deep in flood waters. On the 30th of July, 1930, 90 years ago today, the Daily Mail, Rangoon Gazette, Eric Hook's scoop was received around the world and published by Australian newspapers. Eric Cook had been found on a bank of the Bali Choang River, several miles downstream from where Jack had left him. It was a spot that searchers had already passed several times. Now, though, receding waters had revealed Eric. How he died was impossible to determine. Hopefully, fever, dehydration, exposure or drowning had claimed him before the big cat or big cats came to maul him and chew off his limbs. The Daily Mail's report said he was little more than a skeleton and had to be identified by his hair. The newspaper got its money's worth, able to run a photo of the search party standing around Eric's remains as they discussed how to get them back to civilization. Eric Hook was buried in the cemetery at Prome the next day in a somber funeral with colonial military trappings. A few days after that, a memorial was held in West Wickham, attended by his wife and little daughters. A week later, the 10th of August in Sydney, Newington College's students marched in uniform to Stanmore Methodist Church, where a memorial service was held, attended by Eric's parents, his brother and his friends. By now triumphant aviatrix Amy Johnson had returned to England and she was cheered by thousands of Londoners as she arrived at the Savoy Hotel for a luncheon where she was awarded £10,000 by the Daily Mail. To the assembled dignitaries, which included Bert Hinkler, she said, quote, My first thought when I received the Daily Mail check was for the wife of Eric Hook, who set out on the same journey as myself, but whose luck was not so good. Amy put her money where her mouth was by donating £100 to Dorothy. Eric's widow needed the money because she'd just discovered that her dead husband's misadventure had left her and her daughters penniless. Jack Matthews was also penniless, and he was stuck in Burma, though he'd now recovered sufficiently to travel. The only way to get back to England was to work his passage on a ship. Hearing this, London's Daily Herald newspaper saw an opportunity, came to the party, and paid his fare and expenses. Jack arrived in London in mid-September, and the paper got its exclusive, snapping a photo of him reuniting with his family. The headline? Flyer, back from the dead. But Jack had one more ordeal, and that was seeing Dorothy and telling her face-to-face what had happened to Eric. They met in London, tears pouring down his face. And afterwards, he said that the meeting was worse than anything he'd endured in Burma. As for Dorothy, she struck a bitter and mysterious note, Quote, I know everything and I am starting life all over again. There is much in what Matthews told me that the public does not know. My husband's affairs have turned out to be much worse than I ever guessed. What did that mean? We don't know. But we do know that when she said she was starting over, she meant it. Since Eric had disappeared, Dorothy had received hundreds of letters of support and sympathy. One of these arrived from a man who said his wife had died on the same day as Eric. Dorothy and this man met, the two bereaved souls connected, and they were engaged to be married by September 1930. As for Jack Matthews, he married his fiancée the next year and continued to work as an aircraft mechanic. Australia's other aviation heroes went on to greater glory and to deaths that made them immortal. Bert Hinkler was the first, crashing in Italy in January 1933. Charles Ulm was next, disappearing over the Pacific in December the following year. Charles Kingsford Smith went down off the coast of Burma in November 1935. Amy Johnson, as beloved by the Australian public as if she'd been born here, died in early 1941 in a plane crash while working as an RAF ferry pilot. Eric Hook, sadly, something that Newington's headmaster, Reverend Charles Prescott said at his memorial, didn't come to pass, and Eric's memory faded to the point where he's pretty much forgotten today. This is what the Reverend said that day, quote, We do not know what motive prompted Eric Hook. Let us give him credit for the best. He has a place among the heroes and martyrs of aviation. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on this day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungara people. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com/slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com/slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Paul, cool. thanks for listening, and catch you tomorrow.